Are you looking for the ideal gift for the dog-loving children in your family? Jack and Billy Puppy Tales is a delightful story with an important message for children of all ages. It's written by Steve Goodall and Sally Bradbury. You'll follow two puppies, Jack and Billy, during that all-important first year of their lives. It's had some amazing reviews from some of the top dog trainers in the world. Dr Ian Dunbar, veterinary behaviourist, says... I started to smile after only four pages. I couldn't put it down and at the end I could barely read for tears of happiness. This is a wonderful book. Karen Tong, dog training instructor and child dog bite prevention educator, said this. This will definitely educate both children and adults about the correct way to bring up a puppy. It belongs in the home of all dog lovers and anyone considering acquiring a puppy. You can find us at jackandbillypuppytails.com and join the adventures. We're also on Facebook, Jack and Billy Puppy Tales. See you soon. We have some very exciting news for you on the Barks from the Bookshelf podcast. Our lovely friends at Dogwise, who publish a lot of the books that we have featured and are due to feature, have decided to give all of you lovely listeners 10% off all of their titles. So if you head to their website, which is www.dogwise.com, you can have a look at their catalogue. And when you get to your shopping cart at the end, just type in the coupon code, which is BARKBOOK, all one word, B-A-R-K-B-O-O-K, and they'll give you a whopping 10% off. Enjoy! Barks from the bookshop and we're gonna learn about our dogs and barks from the bookshop and we're gonna learn together. Barks from the bookshop and we're gonna learn about our dogs and barks from the bookshop till we're gone. Barks from the bookshop and we're gonna learn about our dogs and barks from the bookshop and we're gonna learn together. Barks from the bookshop, we're gonna learn about our dogs and barks from the bookshop. Hello everybody, it is I, Steve, um, the one half of the Barks from the Bookshelf crew. Um, I we ha- we had lofty plans before we get into anything. We had lofty plans of putting out um one of our book review episodes first. But that was before I've just got off a call with Nat and Danielle Beck. And um for those of you that know Danielle, you probably know this already, but I found this incredibly interesting. Um talking to her was just brilliant. Um so um I've changed the plans. I've gone rogue and um um uh, me and Nat were thinking we're gonna pop this one out um instead. We're gonna pop this out uh quick as an off the shelf. Um uh because I think it's something that everyone could do listening to. Um just as a quickie, um I've got a bit of a a bit of a bio up from Danielle here. So she is a clinical animal behaviorist. Danielle is an enthusiastic and passionate animal trainer and behavior counselor, helping people to find the best way to help their animal is Danielle's life's work. Nothing makes her smile more than knowing she's helping a dog and their human to reignite their bond. Now, what we focused on a lot on this podcast was talking about trauma. Now, obviously, um, those of you that know Nat and her work with Drax, um, 
and Nat's been talking a lot recently about trauma um, and how it affects dogs. Um, so we got into that. Um, we got into a little bit of neuroscience. Um, oh, we got into lords. We did. We did. So, um, so without making you hang on any any longer, um, here we go. We're back, and this one is a corker. Um, let us know what you think. Please send us um, your emails. Let us know what you think of the episodes. Write, review, subscribe, tell your friends, all of that good gubbins, because Barks from the Bookshelf is back. See you on the other side. Oh, bye-bye. with you muted and I, I know, know. <laughs> yeah. oh my God, I love your headset it glows I love it it flashes when I'm shooting people uh, <laughs> oh is it like a gaming headset yeah cool I uh, do you know what I got um we recently got a um a switch a Nintendo switch and it's the yeah. first it's the first console I've had for about I'm not even joking probably 15 maybe even longer I've, I've, good, always, I've always stayed away from them because I think I would lose my entire life to them. And yeah, anyway, you would, I wanted you to would, shoot you'd never up. go out again. <laughs> I wanted yeah. a shoot 'em up game because yeah. I used to have a Wii, and um, yeah. and on there they had House of the Dead Four, and it was like okay. my favorite game ever. It's just like a rail shooter, you know, where you go through. And it's yeah, yeah. And Corin talked me into buying Doom. And <gasps> oh my god, I loved it. Love well, Doom. I loved it. I used to play it when I was about twelve on a PC. Okay, well, <laughs> yeah. The, the thing is, this game is impossibly hard. It's impossibly yeah. hard, and to boot, it's impossibly scary as well. So you just there's no <laughs> Do they like still make the snarly. The there's no like training bit in it. There's no like there's no like gallery to like perfect your shooting or whatever. You just get dropped in this like <laughs> weird, and then there's. <laughs> Like coming at you from left and right, and then before you know it, you're dead because I can't work out how to play it. I honestly can't. My yeah. thumbs are knackered and everything's just broken. On me. Don't play Dark Souls because that's even worse. Is it? I, I think I think it requires a level of ambi- ambidextrousness yes. that I do not require in my hands. <laughs> I, I think the millennials have left me behind on that one. <laughs> uh, I I don't game as much as as I used to. I have a PS4, so I do a I do a fair bit. Um, but my son's got a switch. Okay. And um, I quite like playing the switch. It's quite nice. It's a lot better than consoles, like the handheld ones. It's like it beats a Game Boy. Like, that's what I used to have as a handheld. I haven't used it as a handheld yet. We've just got it linked up to the to the. TV. Oh, it's the TV. Um, but yeah, I um, Corinne's got Crash Bandicoot on it um, as a little blast from the past. But uh, she really enjoys that. I love Crash Bandicoot. <laughs> it's so good. Crash Bandicoot's brilliant. And um, I uh, downloaded all of the old SNES games, <laughs> which are really, you can't not, which are really dated now. <laughs> You've got to though, haven't you? Like Super Mario World's still really good though. It's brilliant, and even like it's not. A, I still, I love Super Mario Three, 
that was always like my favorite one because I love the raccoon tail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even like elements of that that you've got on the other ones are still really good, but it just nothing beats that old fashioned platform. Yeah. And my son now, like if he dies, there's so many save points. I'm like, I remember having to go as far as you could just in one go. And if you died, you were right back at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like it's the saves all the way now. There's cheats. And if you don't want to work for your armor, you can just buy it. Yeah, right. Like that one's really annoying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially if they're nicking your credit card. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, I don't have that yet, but I anticipate when he's a teenager. <laughs> it might happen. Uh, lovely to meet you, anyway. <laughs> lovely to meet you. I've had I've had lots about you, obviously. Because uh, oh, wonderful! All good, I hope. Nat's one of your biggest fans. <gasps> oh, that's really weird because I'm one of Nat's biggest fans. <laughs> we like fangirl over each other. Yeah, going... it, it might be sickening at points. Oh, this will yeah. be interesting because I can't stand Nat. So it'll be interesting <laughs> to, get, to get. That never comes across. <laughs> He's a very good actor, is our Steve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't know if Steve's done his sneaky press record anyway. He has done that already. He okay. does that. He does that. Um, so we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. What do you want to talk about? I'm I'm an open book. Like I am quite happy to discuss dog stuff or life stuff or mental health stuff or more dog stuff or. Well, that I... all sounds good to me. <laughs> like I'm yeah. That's why I thought you'd be brilliant to get on because we. <laughs> so basically, we've got we've got our normal kind of book, not review, but you you know what we do. We just yeah, talk yeah. about books, and then um, the off the shelf series is just you know talking to other people in the industry and finding a bit more out about them and promoting stuff they might be getting up to. Which I thought yeah. you could promote meerkat stuff Ooh, if you I'm, want to. I'm I'm more than happy to plug and promote little stuff that i'm working on but yeah. like it doesn't yeah. have to be around that we get we're being invaded by a puppy currently That's okay fine. can i meet can i meet him please can... i haven't met him live yet oh, yes, he's, oh he's not a puppy anymore he's huge he's he's reached the puppy uglies the puppy uglies what where everything's <laughs> out of proportion yeah <laughs> so like this little cute little head that used to be there now has like this long nose that comes out of nowhere and like the ears are quite there but like his bum's a bit higher than his shoulders <laughs> and he's just in that uglies it's puppy uglies like he's still cute because he's a puppy but he's not as cute as he was a few weeks ago yeah. which i found really interesting because when i was um because i hosted the ISAS conference did you watch it now uh no i signed up and then i got so busy that <laughs> it hasn't happened so my CPD is rubbish this year, but uh, tell me all about it anyway. Well, what it's because the... of the, the puppy thing, there was one particular study and it was on street dogs. And they were saying how the most successful street dogs are those whose puppies um, are encouraged to go near people mm. who then feed them. And it's always when they're around six to eight weeks of age. So they then did a study on puppy cuteness and turns out the puppies are the cutest around this time where the the mum's milk's kind of drying up and they need them to be fed by people before they're able to scavenge for food by themselves. And they did like a whole bunch of different breeds. And it was these age ranges where people found all puppies between these ages, regardless of breeds, were the cutest. And then once they kind of went past that, and you could see like before they were cute, 
they're super cute and then yeah they're still cute and I'm like <laughs> there's actually research on yeah. puppy cuteness with evidence of puppy uglies <laughs> like, yeah that makes that makes sense doesn't it in fairness that well, makes perfect sense yeah it was just one of those little things where we all kind of know but it's nice when the science kind yeah. of just shows us what we already know and yeah. it's like everyone knows that the puppies are the cutest when you bring them home it's, it's those six to eight weeks where they're just adorable little floof balls i wonder if that's the time it takes you to be invested enough like you're emotionally invested enough yeah, and they're those, like those i'm not gonna let you go them. now you can be ugly it's fine i love you stay with yeah. me <laughs> yeah well that's yeah. what all the all the research points at from like a mammalian point of view that's yeah. why babies have bigger eyes and yeah you know it's like the um you know in shrek puss in boots when he goes oh he's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's it we're Tuckers. dogs have capitalized on this so the, the <laughs> yeah. are like okay this is this is age range go to the humans they will feed you at this age i had i had a really tragic drop off in looks at about nine weeks as well i remember <laughs> you remember you it say you had, did you have a beard then as well yeah but my mum just, oh, put, she just put me in the garden at 10 weeks and that was it that's, that's a fend for myself for yourself. <laughs> sorry i need to do things with my hands so I've, i'm making snuffle mats Oh, good for you. Okay, <laughs> just, just in case you see me, like, faffing around and mm. stuff. <laughs> Impossible for me to not do something, so. <laughs> well, uh, I can get you, your brain doing something then for a moment. For so um, for those listeners that may not know what you get up to yeah. day to day, can you give us a little Danny synopsis? Tell oh, us all about gosh. you. Oh, God, <laughs> which me? Okay. Oh, yeah, true. Um, <laughs> That's part of it. So, yeah. So, I am Danielle Beck. I am a registered clinical animal behaviorist and dog training instructor. I have been working alongside animals for about 19 years now, and it makes me sound really old. I've <laughs> um, been working with dogs specifically for 15 of those, doing behavior consultations for about 10 years. I currently live with a 14-year-old Alaska Malamute Cross Husky, a almost three no he is three no fully you three mikey's gonna answer is he three already wow he's, yeah he's yeah he's not three no he's three november three in november, three in november. it's nearly november he's... it's not long till november yeah that's why i was thinking <laughs> yeah he's nearly three now oh my goodness so did, did your dog just talk to you he did, yes. Did you heard it? Heard it live. Double, She's yeah. that good at training. <laughs> <laughs> Not so um, I can't be the only person that asks questions to their dogs. <laughs> yeah. The main question I ask, which I know the answer to is, uh, did Jay feed you? Yeah. And then they're like, no, 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 he didn't. Definitely not. Yeah. Um, and as you just saw, I have a five-month-old um, mini American Shepherd puppy as well. Yeah. Um, who we had to bring in because Nuffle, my nearly three-year-old, is my assistant's dog in training because I recently lost my actual assistant's dog um, to a very sudden cancer. So we've got a new puppy in to help because Nuffle is brilliant, but he's always been a bit of a sensitive soul. And he's always been one of these dogs where he sits and watches. And when you have dogs that do this, they're either, they don't care, so they're just like, yeah, or they're a little bit of a worrier and they're an overthinker. Turns out he's more of the overthinker. So he's fantastic at the assistance dog work that I need him to do in the home. Mm -hmm. Public access wise, 
in places that he knows he's confident in, he's okay, but he's not a dog that I can guarantee the behavior everywhere I go. Sometimes he loses his boss a little bit. And he's not the most motivated dog in the world. I remember doing a self-control workshop with him where we were we were attendees and we were throwing food and toys everywhere. He just sat there going, don't care. Oh, he's a sidelines guy, isn't he? Yeah, he just, he likes to do his thing in his own time when he wants to. And even things like, one of the simple tasks he does is he opens and closes doors for me. And I'll ask him to close the door and he just goes, <sighs> and I'm like, well, please. And he's like, okay. But you can see the motivation just isn't, isn't there. So he's going to be like, I'm not going to withdraw him from the program, but I am going to be very select over where I would like him to work. And he's also just going to be like an at-home assistance dog because he's just, his heart's not in it. And I'm not going to force him to do anything he's not going to do. And I don't believe that any assistance dog should do something if they're not happy about it. So I was like, okay, let's get another one. So enter Spock, who just loves life. And he loves doing stuff. And he comes out and about with me to places just to practice. And he's just a little showman. Like he has got, he's got that temperament that Nuffle never had. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did assistance dog because I have a chronic illness where my brain and my heart don't talk to each other very well. And it means that I pass out, mm-hmm. <laughs> which isn't the most useful thing when you're sort in the middle of a field training dogs. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> it's amazing though, isn't it? What, so um what uh holly was i mean well you've seen her work at, at doing yeah she yeah. would so she would um alert danielle when what exactly was her her do you know what happened? i i don't know specifically. do you smell different or do you does she te- must do she picks up on something i don't know if it if it was the change in my heart rate or blood pressure that she noticed or if during those times i released some chemical that she would pick up on but there was something that and i'm 99% sure it was something scent related because of the way that she would react if i'm not in the room and she thought i wasn't okay wow and i'm wondering if she because there's a few things i think actually was it an action conference where i was in a bathroom and yeah someone was holding her yeah and uh she she got really agitated and yeah and then I she needed to go and find me and she like just tracked me down in the building mm. because she mm. knew that guy wasn't I wasn't okay and there's so many times where I'm not I'm not okay and people can't take her away from me if I'm not okay unless it's a toilet run in which case if you say come on hell let's go to the toilet and then we'll come back and then she will drag you to an area where she can go to the toilet do it and then run yeah. <laughs> like back and other times if I'm okay she's the happiest dog in the world she'll go with anyone and play but the second she knows that i'm not okay and because the condition kind of happened really quickly she'd had like five years with me where i'd been fine and then the remainder of the time i wasn't and she just picked up so quickly when i smell like this this happens which caused her distress so she used to alert me to it and then i was like okay you're alerting because you're worried about me, which is great. I love that we've got that connection, that bond, but I didn't want her to be stressed. Then we did a bit of extra work. And once she learned that I would listen to her, mm. um, it hurt. but I've never seen a dog roll her eyes as much as Holly and the times where I ignore her. Yeah. There's times where like she would sit on the stairs to stop me from going up and I'd be like, no, Holly, just move out the way. And she'd be like, <sighs> and then I'd pass out on the stairs. And she got more and more adamant as the 
as the years went on and I was like okay yeah I need to listen to my dog and she started looking at the people around me going she's not listening to me yeah she would I remember it might have been the action conference or uh, when we went to uh, Manchester for the IEABC one. Yes, that one. And um, we were all just chatting. And I think probably part of the adrenaline of being in that situation where you're chatting and you're not thinking about things. And, yeah. you know, it, it your condition is a hidden condition, isn't it? Until yeah, you're yeah. on the floor, you know. So yeah, we, I, I there's nothing we can pick up on as your, as your mates, you know. Yeah. Um, and Holly um was alerting and but we were all chatting so she then started going around to everybody like excuse me lady can you tell her please yeah I mean it and it yeah. just escalated and then we were like right let's go and sit down <laughs> yeah because you just what did that because sometimes people can see a difference in like my skin color when the blood starts to change but when you're in a in a bar type area you can't see and I can't always tell because I'm just busy in the conversation. So I'll always feel a little bit funny, but I can feel a bit off for about an hour or so and not pass out. And sometimes I do. So I couldn't tell, but she always could. But when she starts bugging other people because I'm not listening to her, I just find hilarious. And I remember Natalie once saying to me, if she alerts, what does she do? And I'm like, oh, you'll tell. But, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like it varies, but she's like, excuse me. Excuse me, lady. Lady, my mum's not okay. <laughs> That's just absolutely fascinating, isn't it? I mean, I've obviously I've heard of, of things, you know, that dogs and their their noses and how amazing and great they are. Assuming that it is her nose that, she, that that she's using there, but when you hear like yeah. first-hand stories about what they do, it just it just really just, it still takes me back. I don't know why I'm still surprised to this day, but it just absolutely blows my mind about how. Just yeah. that story about you being off in the toilet, like somewhere and, and you know, then being able to, it's just incredible. Yeah. It's that, that was the point for me where I was like, it's got to be sent. Yeah. And yeah. the fact that she's, cause she's in a bar and it was like, it was food time. So there was like buffet and food and things around <laughs> and she is a chocolate Labrador. Mm. And the fact that the, despite all that distractions and the people fussing her and things, there's still that part of it that kind of goes, mom's not here. And then suddenly a mom's not okay. Mm. and then just like being unsettled because she was never like too pulley she'd just get really unsettled and she'd nudge people so everyone would be like the dog that was nice and calm is suddenly not and then it's just someone that knows what she does going we need to find Danny and then she will just track me down and it was always just it surprised me every time that she did it and I don't know how I can teach a dog to do what she did because she yeah. just did so much naturally it was just her and, and that's not something you can teach. No, you can't. You you know, all of the kind of more regimented um, alerting is very much on a, a discriminative scent, isn't it? They've yeah. isolated the scent and then they train it and it's very goal orientated training. Whereas with with Holly Dog, you know, if you didn't know all the things you knew about your condition and about dog behavior and training, mm -hmm. then you wouldn't have been able to trust her and, and fully reinforce what she was doing yeah. so that she trusted you enough to do it again and to be able to change it from a, I'm a bit worried about you, mum, to a mum, that thing's happening again. Where's my biscuit? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? it's that thing's happening. Here's a biscuit. And if I interrupt you now, I'm not going to get too worried because that end result isn't going to happen. Mm. So it was that, it was, it's nice to know that a dog cared that much, to be honest. Mm. And what tri what tickled me at the time is Deefa, my, my older Malamute, like he was around the whole time as well. And he'd known me longer, arguably. 
but he didn't care. <laughs> I knew that he could smell the exact same things that she could. He witnessed everything, but there wasn't anything in him to actually do anything about it. And to this day, I couldn't tell you if that's because he generally didn't care or if he be- if he saw what Holly was doing and was like, I don't need to because she's doing it. It mm. just boggles the mind, doesn't it? The, the yeah. amount of like thing, the amount of sort of like studies and things you'd want if I was in any way like scientifically minded and like you'd want yeah. to set up and do and find it, it, it that aren't it's more questions than answers yeah. in that entire story, isn't there? Yeah, but it's just it shows how socialist species are. Yeah, and how I mean you hear about the studies on on wolves and things of how they they will adapt their hunting tactics depending if a fem- family member is kind of not feeling very well. They're all very mm-hmm. in tune to, to illness and how they, they they can pick up the scent. I remember at one of the conferences, one of the delegates turned around to me and was like, she thinks you're a sick deer then, doesn't she? In a very fun way, because it was all about how the predators can smell the sickness of the prey. So they're able to tune it out from a distance. And I'm like, that's actually quite relevant research to what these dogs do is they have this, almost predisposed evolution trait to be able to detect illness in other species which is beneficial for them mm. and i was like oh wow actually yeah i am just like a sick deer in a herd that she's just singled out <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a different slant on it really isn't it i would like to think that maybe the physiology is there to detect those things but the yeah. emotion was different <laughs> like to think that because i do think yeah. we had a very good bond yeah um, i can't imagine her you know tracking towards you to munch to on hunt you down yeah. <laughs> she was, i could see she for doing that i could see my husky <laughs> wanted to do I was that say, though, not... the moral of the story is don't get a malamute cross husky. <laughs> yeah, not, for, not for an assistance dog they don't make the, the best ones a friend of mine has five husky males one of them is her assistance dog the other four don't care Oh, okay. She's not the ideal dog to <laughs> do this kind of work with. <laughs> so how how did you get started in the world of training dogs, Danny? It was, I started always wanting to work with animals. So animals is all I've ever done um, since being a teenager. I did an animal care course at Myersco College. And at the time I was specializing in reptiles. Reptiles were very much my thing. Um, I had about, 20 when I was a teen, did my animal care college, went to Bangor University to do zoology purely because they specialize in herpetology at that university. And they now do an actual course only on herpetology. Do they? I didn't yeah. know that. Wow. Whereas well, you things only have changed since when we, we went to uni. You could only yeah. do zoology. You can do... Now, the year I graduated, they did zoology with animal behavior as a dual one. And I was like, oh, <laughs> and they do herpetology as a specific one because it was the only university in the country at the time where herpetology was a core module in your third year so you had to do it it wasn't an optional little piece so it was all very kind of reptile based i did my work experience when i was at college at blackpool zoo when i was at university i was working at west Midland safari park so it was always very animated and i always wanted to do something conservation wise with animals so i did like jungle trekking and all that kind of stuff and it wasn't until my third year of university where my sister decided to get a rescue dog for her dog as a friend. So she picked and <laughs> she picked a six-month-old border collie cross mm-hmm. that they found <laughs> as a stray. <laughs> and looking at 
Now, they're not the dogs that you have as a first dog. No, or uh, as a friend for another dog. Was, yeah. <laughs> she brought this dog into her house as a friend for her other dog. And this dog was fine with her dog, but he would attack any dog that came anywhere near. He would just lunge and bite them on the nose. If people raised their arms around him, he'd jump up and try and bite them. He had separation issues. He would resource guards to the point where he would collect all of the toys in the house, put them all in a pile, lie on top of them. So the poor other dog that just wouldn't say boo to a goose would just sit in the house just kind of going, I'd, I'd really like my ball, please. <laughs> and he'd be like, no, it's mine. <laughs> so after like six months of trying, my sister was like, I can't deal with, with this dog. Um, I was in my third year at uni, so I had a lot of spare time to a degree because you don't have as many lectures in your third year because it's more dissertation work. And I was like, you know what? I work with wolves and tigers and stuff. I can I can deal with a dog. Like, and I lived in North Wales at Bangor. Yeah, that was that was not easy. <laughs> so, um, but he taught me so much. And what I found that, in that dog becomes psychopath. That is psychopath. Uh... Yeah. Um, he is my soul dog I am convinced that if you believe in reincarnation that he is reincarnated into Nuffle because <laughs> they are so similar other than the reactivity but in the in the mannerisms in the way that they look and I was like okay let's take him to training classes because that's what you do when you have a dog that has problems is you seek out a dog trainer you go to training classes he should never have been admitted into training classes but I didn't know that at the time Mm. so we went to a training class in Anglesey and every time he barked they squirted him with water from a little water pistol that the trainer used to have in her pocket and as I'm watching all this I'm thinking I I can teach tigers to like do stuff using meat mm. and you're squirting a dog in the face yeah like and it's just the two world because a lot of the the training has started to come into the zoo world at that stage and there was loads of like law and rewards. So we get the animals in by putting the food out and the husband's training was starting to come through. So I, did, I wasn't involved too much, but I would do some of the leading in for some of the animals when we get into the enclosures and I'd see what the vets were doing. I'm like, and it just, it seemed really confusing to me at the time as to why we're working on training these animals to respond to us. Yet a dog, we were still squirting mm. in the face mm. and, being told to like grab them and hold them down and things and i'm like well no it's like well you can't train a dog otherwise without physically grabbing them and i'm like but i can train and work with these animals every weekend and i don't touch them because of the protected contact and i can still ask them to do stuff and it just wasn't making sense to me so then i was like right well i'm at uni so let's let's do some research then i started to look into things and was reading up on all the dominant stuff and in my head when it came to dominance in particular I was a zoology student. I knew that what that word meant in the context of the species that I was working with. Yeah. Mm. So when people are like, you've got to be dominant over your dog. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense just by definition, because we're different species. Like yeah, you know, an elephant can't dominate a lion. In like, what context? What do you mean? And for how yeah. long? And Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it confused me so much. And the more I read, the more confused I got. And I was like, right, okay, I need to find some way of, knowing where the good advice is so i would look at literature and find out who was doing the more stuff i then looked at okay how to become a dog trader website search and on my on my travels i then found the apbc um who at the time were like the only like major organizations doing it i think tbcs was 
not so far behind. Is it TBCS? They were UKRCB at the time. Yeah, there might be another B in there. I can't TCB. Yeah. <laughs> I apologize to any members. I am not belittling yes. your organization. I just alphabet super just too many me so acronyms. much. Yeah. Yeah. And they were like, well, you have to have a degree. And I was like, great, I've got that. It's like, and we recommend this master's. And at the time, the only one available for that was the Southampton course. So I was like, well, I'm going to have a go at dog training. So I did a couple of kind of CPD type things. I read a few books. Um, I joined as a provisional member and just started going to conferences and starting to train up. And at the time I was working with Junior and we managed to to just get him a long way. But I kind of got him to a point, you know, when you first start understanding counter conditioning and reactive dog training. And then there's just this little bit that you can't get over because you've not really done the desensitization part properly. You haven't got that relaxation. You've just taught them an alternative behavior, but you've not actually changed their emotion. Particularly with a collie who is, you know, very task driven. And I, I certainly got there with Jack as well. I could have a perfect look at that look away or, a, you know, another operant behavior of just watch me. But mm-hmm. if I could feel his heartbeat, it would still be going 10 to the dozen, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was like, I need to understand why I can't get past this, this final hurdle, what is in the thing. So I went to um, the 25th aggression and the very 2010, maybe nine, but good 10 years ago. And what did it for me is I saw Anne McBride speak. Mm. And it was the first time I'd ever seen her speak about anything. And I was like, Whoa! I was like, she's like a really insightful, very inspiring lady. Yeah, uh, she's come she's up amazing. quite a lot of times. On I've, I've I've seen her talk live at, Nat, at Nat's um, conference. I'd, yeah, love, I'd love I, to get her on here. If she, I got her along um, to a conference we did at Winchester, and she talks about um, rodents, didn't she, Steve? And yeah. oh, it brilliant. was great. Everyone was kind of a bit like, um, oh rodents you know we're here to talk about we want to hear about dogs or cats or horses but honestly she captivated everyone and everyone was buzzing about the the oh yeah you give her a topic and she'll just keep you and i was just like i want to learn from this lady so i cornered her i was like i got my big girl pants on and i cornered her after thing and i was like i'm really interested in your in your master's program and she's like it closes it was on saturday that she spoke she said the deadline is on monday if you get your application in tonight we'll have a look so like within 24 wow. hours, I had applied and it was that that quick. And then it was like, yep, you're accepted. And then I did the Southampton. And that's that then kind of guided me like straight into domestic species, like dogs. I wanted to fix my own dog. And mm-hmm. because I once decided to learn more about how the brain worked and everything else, it kind of, I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. And I used the time for my master's to bring that background to reptiles a little bit. So my master's focus on reptile stress. And because I was like, well, all these socialization periods and these mental simulation activities, I'm like, surely this has to apply to these guys as well. Mm. Turns out it does. Yeah. Um, but I never published my research. I never got around to it. Yeah. Um, it's still a, an option. And then I kind of just went from that to focusing on aggression because I'd lived it. And I know how heartbreaking difficult it is to be the isolated person that has the reactive dog. You know, you can't go to the park. You can't go and enjoy life as much because you've got this dog that other people see as a danger. But when you're at home with it, but you've, you know, just like flopping around and you're like, how can this dog be seen as such a danger to so many people? 
Um, so it was more of a, that was it then. I was set to, to go. And everything I've done since has just been to find out more and more information about why these animals react the way they do. And what interested me the most is the more I learn about how their brain develops and how the experiences they go through affect them, the more I started to look, going to go all hippie now is I started to look more at myself and I'm like okay well all of these things affect our dog's behavior in the space of such a short space of time like well how does that happen on humans and because the research is so similar I was like this is this is really interesting stuff and then it started to turn inwards onto me and I started to look at my own behavior and my own things um and that's when I started to realize that actually there's a few things that of myself that are a little bit out of the ordinary <laughs> when it came to this sort of stuff. And learning and understanding the dog's brain and how trauma affects human brains, mobilian brains and their behaviors helped me understand myself a lot more. So I can now bring that back round. And that's what Natalie mentioned earlier, that I have a new website called Control the Meerkat. And that's all about essentially PTSD, um, but in animals. And just how it kind of helps, how the brain affects and how you've kind of got to really control that makeup before you can train the dog. As Natalie mentioned, you know, a lot of people, you focus so much on training these dogs, not on actually just helping them live. Mm. You know, sometimes you've got to make them feel safe before they can even train themselves. Um, so that's kind of a very long roundabout way of explaining my journey so far. I'm sorry if I waffled a bit too much. No, it's fascinating. <laughs> no, it's great. I, I saw, I actually saw the, the meerkat thing on, on, um, on the Facebooks the other day. And I was like, well, meerkats, what's that about? Yeah. But, yeah. So, so you, you've just launched this. So what, what's the aim? So the aim of meerkat is I essentially want to bring emotions back into training. Yeah. So, there's a lot of dogs where you know you can teach them alternative behaviors and you can teach them other things to do and they work beautifully well because we're dealing with dogs that have healthy brains so if they've been socialized properly if they've not had too many bad experiences or if they've had one or two bad experiences but have bounced back then that kind of training is going to work wonders for those dogs and they're going to be able to cope because their brain is healthy it's designed to do it yeah. away you go if you've got dogs that have been more traumatized, if they've been really like puppy farming type experiences, if they've been bounced from home to home, if they've had a lot of bad things, then the brains don't develop in the same way because the brain hasn't felt safe. So it's had to develop differently and protect itself. So what often happens is in the mammalian brain, you have a part of the brain called the default mode network. And this basically allows you to relax. So this is what is active in mammals that are at rest and there's loads of research on this in humans. And what I found really fascinating was there was a study released, I think it was last year, um, by Adam, I always pronounce his surname wrong, Milkowski, um, for one of the Hungarian universities. Yeah. And they found resting state brains, the default mode network in the brains of dogs. And I was like, oh, they have it too. Which transferring that kind of information means that if in a brain of humans that have PTSD, the default mode network isn't active when you're at rest if you have PTSD because your brain has not developed the state where you're able to feel safe enough. So those memories and things in your forethought and be able to see the future and feel calm about yourself isn't possible in a human that has PTSD when you're at rest. That's it's, like, it's, it's, it's like the science, isn't it, behind 
switch off, relax, you know, yes. all the stuff that we would try and tell ourselves or, uh, you know, why your mind is always racing and you, you can't just forget things. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. And now we've got the science there to kind of show it. It's like actually dogs are the same. So if you've got these traumatized dogs, you can teach them a look at me as much as you want. It's not going to change that part of their brain until the animal and their brain feels safe on a physiological level. You're not going to get as far as you, you want to get with your treatment plan. And most people currently are experiencing what it's like to have a body that is on alert despite consciously not being, because we're all in a pandemic. So everyone yeah. has this this anxiety that's suddenly just been thrown at us all. Because, you know, if you look at like, you know, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm-hmm. I remember posting this a, a while ago and it's like the bottom line is like physiological stuff. And then you've got like safety. I'm like, you are here. Like we are in the middle of this because at the time, like the food was being scarce, you know, toilet roll and stuff. Our basic needs weren't being met. You know, we didn't know when the next meal was coming from, if we were going to be paid. None of us felt safe because there was an invisible threat out of our doors. So automatically, overnight, the entire world had anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. This is what it's like for those dogs. You know, we could learn in that situation, but we're not going to remember very well. Everyone's kind of, you know, they're waking up in the morning, they're sitting down, they're having a cup of tea, three hours have passed, and they have no idea what's happened during that time because our brains are just they're in that mode and i think it's fascinating that i think it's like the first time where everyone has just realized what it's like to have one of these kind of mental illnesses and we can emphasize so much more with not only humans but with our with our dogs and go well you know we we can't do this stuff until they feel safe so let's let's give them some space similar to what natalie's been doing with the wonderful work she'll be doing with drax and i'm yeah. probably like <laughs> drax's biggest fan is you know he he's not able to get very far until he feels safe so there's no point teaching him you know, a nose target or how to put on a harness or how to go for a mm. walk until he actually feels safe. Yeah. yeah. So that's all about what, what the meerkat is, is that I want people to imagine that there is essentially a meerkat on the shoulder of their dog at all times. And if you've got a nice, healthy dog that feels nice and safe, the meerkat's curled up. And unless something comes into view that is actually threatening, the meerkat stays asleep. Whereas in our, in our anxious dogs that are more reactive dogs, their meerkats on sentry duty on their shoulder at all times, essentially controlling it. Like they've got range on the dog. So if they see something, they panic before the dog's even able to. So the dog's sudden reaction that's out of their control, they have no conscious control over that reaction most of the time. So it's a, let's control the meerkat and then we can train your dog. Because until we get that meerkat settled and off sentry duty, we're not going to get through to your dog. So that's what control the meerkat is all about. That sounds incredible. And what... so that's what it's all about. What is it? A course? What? what what's the? Yes. What's the deal? It's essentially because I'm sold already. By the way, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm in. Steve's in. Sign in. him up. Right. Sign him up. You had me at meerkat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's. I basically want to create a community, so it's a it's a subscription service because I I need to make a bit of mm-hmm. a bit of money, unfortunately, um, but it's more to kind of keep trolls out yeah yeah, yeah. Than, than anything else because you kind of i, Listen, I don't think trolls. do not even think about apologizing for charging for what <laughs> no. will be mind-blowing life-altering um ethos changing advice okay so stop right that right there okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so there's there's forums on there that people can join that can talk to there's a couple of courses. So there's like a basic course um, called Dr. Spock and the Meerkat. 
And that's basically just, it's Idiot's Guide to Neuroscience, essentially. So Dr. Spock is your frontal cortex that, so who else could I pick than Dr. Spock? <laughs> um, the Maycat is your emotional brain. So it's all about how, like, the best example I have for it is that in the in the program, it's uh, the Maycat smells smoke and starts panicking that there's a fire. And because all your senses will trigger your amygdala, your makeup before it filters through to your to your doctor Spock. So makeup's running around panicking, eventually filters through to Spock, who then assesses the situation, goes, dude, it's the toaster. You know, so, <laughs> the, so the makeup is just panicked. And it's similar to those with PTSD that are veterans where they hear fireworks and it it yeah. triggers them. Into, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's all the same sort of stuff. So it's forums where they can do some courses to learn a little bit more. There's resources on there to help with reactive dogs. There's a program that I'm going to release called If In Doubt, Chill Out. There's essentially how to teach a dog to settle in different situations because that's vital to the help of any dog is, are they able to just relax when there's nothing going on? Is this dog able to actually just go somewhere, put your foot on on their lead and just sit and read a book? Will they lie down and join you or do they struggle? And that tells you so much about them. And I think the... The difference there as well is is knowing the difference between a trained settle, like an mm-hmm. operant behaviour, yeah, rather right. than an yeah. actual emotional response, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. This is something that it's the way that that I train it is very much a you put your foot on the lead and you wait. You allow them to go through that burst because that will tell us so much about this individual. Is it say are they able to just kind of go? Oh, we're staying here for a while, mum. Oh, okay and just lie down are the ones that go i want to do stuff i want to do stuff and they get a bit frustrated or are they the ones that just they keep pacing and they can't calm down because there's something else going on that will tell us so much so we kind of how to work through that program and then every month there'll be discussions with danielle where basically i will just be live and just answer whatever questions anyone wants to throw at me at that time whether it's about their own dogs, whether it's about a particular topic. I might do some polls for those in the forums and go throw some topics at me. What do you want me to talk about? And I'm always quite happy to talk about anything. If I don't know about it, I can always invite some colleagues of mine or friends and go, I don't know about that, but I know someone that's really good for it and see if I can get other people to. So I just want it to be a nice, safe place where people that have these reactive dogs can come to for support and go, I had a really bad day. You know, we've been doing really well. And then this friendly dog came running out of nowhere and it set back my training like three weeks. And it's it's isolating when you have these dogs. So I want people to have the support of other people, the support of professionals that know what they're talking about. So at least the advice they get there, they're safe in the knowledge that this isn't conflicting advice. They're not going to get two things. It's a, the advice you get is going to be good advice that works because the only people that will be advising you are those going through my programs or myself. Other mm-hmm. people can pass on advice, but if someone says something that we don't agree with, then the moderators will step in and say, actually, this program is probably better for you. And I think that's a big thing that's missing in a lot of reactive dog places is there's not a lot of places for people where they're going through this rehabilitation to actually just vent yeah. because it is difficult it is emotional you know there's so many relationship breakdowns that happen when you've got reactive dogs because one person wants to keep the dog the other one doesn't and then if you've ever been bitten by your own dog that's even worse because then you've got a relationship between you and your dog and if you've had to go through the situation where it's got to the point where you've had to rehome your dog or they may have had to be euthanized or something really horrible like that to have the support of people that understand because yeah. it's so easy for us to judge as an outsider and go, well, you shouldn't have done that. 
oh you should have tried this or you should have done that and it's like unless you are in that particular person's situation living in their house in their life you you, you can't judge them for doing mm. what they need to do and sometimes they just need a bit of support and that's hopefully what I'm going to try to bring to everyone is just having that that little advice of going just just trust the plan it's okay you'll get there just keep going it takes years and there's nothing wrong with your dog that's the bit thing I want to try and get through to a lot yeah. of people with these dogs is that you know their brains are different they have developed differently they have a different defense mechanism than your average dog but there's nothing wrong with them they're not and, nasty. yeah usually because wrong things have happened to them yeah but it doesn't mean there's something wrong with them yeah no you know I've which got, is I've a got, hard concept it is a hard yeah it's a that is a tough concept i've, I've got two questions for you danny All okay right. Is the amygdala part of the limbic system of the brain? Yes. It is. Yes. Oh, Steve. Uh, yeah. I mean, so the limbic I, system I, is all I, part I, of your emotional brain. Okay, I remember that because do you remember when we were talking to Jane Arden and she had that hand, it was not hers, someone else come up with this, but this hand thing where the cortex covered the, so the thumb was the limbic system and the cortex covered the limbic system. When you When you blow your brain, when you blow your mind, the cortex is off and the limbic system's like, ah, I'm in control now. Okay. I always quite liked that as a little, um, as a little, that's not very good for a podcast, is it? Shouldn't have <laughs> 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 explain it. Yeah. Send me an email. Do a little video of it. <laughs> Do a little video yeah. of it. Or, or by Jane Arden's book, of course. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. The other question well, was... Jane, lo- Jane lives just up the road from me, so we have very similar ideas and, uh, and concepts. I, I'm a huge... Oh. Yeah, we'll go on the second question. The second question was about so so you you talked um, and maybe Nat can talk a little bit about this as well. You talked about um, where people get it wrong in terms of you know teaching reactive dogs operant things rather than rather than working on the emotion or and actually you brought up the desensitizing part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, where where do you think is the big the big place people are going wrong in terms of that? So in, in so what. I guess the question I'm trying to ask is what would you advise people to do in terms of desensitizing? So forgetting about the whole look at that, look yeah. back at me thing, although that's part of the bigger picture. I do know that, but yeah. you know, what what would you advise someone? I mean, I wouldn't say the people it's, we get it wrong in the, in the fact there's other things that we can do. I would never say that people are wrong in doing that. Yeah. But I I think there is so much of an emphasis on a, if you want to change behavior, you have to teach something new. Mm-hmm. and everyone is focused so much on the like the abcs of behavior you know setting up your antecedents getting your behavior monitoring your consequences and it's almost like people have forgotten that there are other drives within an animal than the consequences of their actions like yeah. we're more than that you know we have drives that are you know triggered by curiosity or food driven safety driven you know, you've got seeking systems and things and all these thing and you know even like one behavior can have multiple different reasons for it some of which can be fixed by operant training but not all of them can and if you're really wanting to build on that kind of choice-based training and really help these animals then just cueing the behaviors all the time isn't really giving them a choice yeah whereas teaching them to regulate themselves teach them to understand themselves and that's more what desensitization in its truest form is about it's it's is this animal able to be relaxed in the presence of the thing it used to find scary and it's working along those gradients and doing it systematically and i tend to find that people often when they're doing these setups for reactive dogs 
if the dogs are always working like mm. they are always working they're never they're never asked to switch off and some dogs i found um one of jane's dogs actually um her little cockers drift who's her little dog geek is one of his coping mechanisms when he doesn't feel overly safe is to work he uses training as a coping mechanism for stress mm. so when you've got dogs that are like that it's a you need them to be able to relax and that's just it's i find it's the missing link i find a lot of people focus so much on that operant training because it's more of a human need i feel is we feel the need to be doing something if you would and i've seen the look on people's faces when i've said my clients like just go and sit in a field with your dog and do nothing and they're like but how's that helping my dog it's like it's like your need to do something is different to what your dog actually needs to do yeah and it's it's working on the human part of understanding that not everything can be fixed by training some of it just takes time and safety and it's filtering through it's just going to take a little bit of time um because people tend to rely on a lot of science and i think the biggest <sighs> problem's probably the wrong word but the biggest roadblock i find is that a lot of the dog training community are trying to be scientific as they can but they're still very stuck on science that's quite old now yeah and they're not keeping up to date on the science of moving forward especially when it comes to brain development uh neuroscience and I feel so many dog trainers would benefit if they followed the human psychology more and use that as models for dogs. It's like, okay, we know when this part of the brain is active, it results in this behavior in humans and they struggle with these exercises and their cognitive functioning depletes when this happens. So we can take some of that and it's not going to be the same in dogs. We can't put that on them, but they have this area of the brain in them as well. So let's give them a little bit of time and let's keep up to date in the science that's moving forward rather than just sticking on, I hate to say it, but rather than sticking on quadrants, yeah, yeah. let's move away from the quadrants and look at the animal as a whole in yeah. their environment. And, you know, there's that, there's that saying, isn't there, that Pavlov's always on your shoulder. So yes. for any listeners that are getting a bit sort of stuck in, in the terminology, you've got very broadly and very simply you've got two forms of conditioning which basically means learning making associations so you've got your operant conditioning which is that's the way I act so I might hear a cue of sit I sit down Um, it's more about a conscious decision to move your body in a certain way the classical conditioning is the the part that that Danny and I are passionate about really and it comes along for the ride something nice happens in the presence of another dog i.e you get asked to sit and then you get some food then naturally a positive association may begin to start between the appearance of a dog and the appearance of food but what goes wrong and what Danny's explained is if that dog is too close then we haven't got optimum learning going on we haven't got optimum classical conditioning going on which is basically I see something something good happens and I think if we can get back to the simplicity of that in training and, and the word training can incorporate all those emotions and the development and potential trauma, it's only going to benefit dogs. Because let's face it, I could present, if I didn't know what I was doing, I could present to a trainer with a recall problem for Drax. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> he won't come back to me. Yeah. 
okay, well, that, anyone that knows Drax knows that there's a million, billion other things going on apart from his recall issue, but there are still some professionals out there that might take that on as a case, yeah. you know, and start working through the more operant behaviours. And it's just a, it's a, a plaster on an arterial bleed, really. Yeah, um, no, I like that. so it's a really tricky subject but so important and another yes i mean a a common theme isn't it that the difference between a trainer and a behaviorist and you know all of those sorts of things and the fact that these words aren't particularly well regulated and and you know and yeah it's it is it is really important that you find someone that knows what they're talking about yeah Um, you know as as a trainer I whenever I get a sniff of anything like that, I am like refer away, my bike, yeah. you know, to the, you know, and um, but you know, sometimes it, I I've had in the past before like taking clients like that on, and then realised like during the session, oh okay, this is something completely, you know, this is something completely different, and yeah. it needs to be referred on. But then there's no shame in that at all, no shame no, in no, knowing no. that something's out of your skill set and. But then, like, if you want, you can go and learn. You can go, you know, you can go and, you know, delve deep into that. I have, um, I mean, I I live up north and we're friendly up north. Do you? (laughs) Can you tell? So what I chips and gravy. (laughs) Yeah, I do like curry as well on my chips, I gotta admit. Um, But a lot of the trainers in my area, if they refer to me, then they can sit in on the consult and we can go through it together. That's cool. Like, you know, so I really want to kind of encourage trainers to go, actually, I think this is a little bit out of my depth, but knowing that if they refer to me, they're not going to lose their client. Because sometimes these yeah. are people that they've worked with for a few weeks on lead reactivity or lead focus, and they've got so far, then they've gone, actually, yeah, we we need to do something else. And I'm like, okay, come sit in on the consultation, do some rehab sessions, and then when you're comfortable, take your client back and you finish off the rehab stuff. I like that. Yeah, I it's, think that's so important because it, you know, I think they're, they're the only them and us needs to be people that are, you know, deliberately harming dogs in the name of training. Yeah, and, absolutely. And uh, everybody else should be open and it's only for the benefit of the dogs, to be honest. And, yeah. you know, I, well, Steve, I don't think it's necessarily a trainer or a behaviourist thing. There are behaviorists that don't know a lot about trauma, me included. Yeah. I'm still learning as I go, you, you know, um, and because the, the research just isn't isn't there anyway. And we are using a lot of, um, you know, human psychology to kind of transfer across. But um, it's just it's fascinating area of, of yeah development and i hope we're having this conversation in 10 years time and you know and we know more things and we can help more dogs and Mm. because the only reason that i know so much about it is is because of my own mental health Mm. um so i don't know if if natalie told you um but i live with a mental illness that's called dissociative identity disorder have you ever heard of that no I can guarantee you've heard of its other name, which is multiple personality disorder. Oh, yes, I've heard of that, yes. Yeah, everyone's heard of that one. <laughs> That's like ha- the, the bad boy in the press. Yeah. 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 It, it hasn't been called multiple personality disorder for about 20 years in the DSM. Yeah, it, it's still... it sticks, yeah. Yeah, it's, it sticks. So, you know, if you watch Split, that's me. Apparently, I am the person that kidnaps people and puts them... <laughs> I'm not. I can't climb walls either. 
But it's <laughs> that's what you say. That's what I say. The other me will tell you something completely different. But it's because I started to look at that side of things, go and be like, okay, well, how has this developed? And it's it's one of those conditions that's developed through childhood trauma. And I was like, but my childhood wasn't that bad. Like it, my parents are, are decent people, and it's all like. It's all personal to the child, but it develops before the age of seven. It's usually when you're an infant and it's just safety and scary. So, you know, if your parents didn't get to you fast enough when you used to cry, that can be traumatic for an infant. Okay. So it doesn't have to be anything major. And being a mother, my son is seven and looking at the previous seven years, I'm like, it doesn't take much to traumatize a child. Like they will freak out over anything. If they don't feel safe, then that can do it. Mm. And it's that repetitive trauma that affects your your brain. So rather than a range of seven where your personality starts to form like a core identity, in me it kind of split off and I develop separately. But it's it's understanding that and seeing that it's not a disorder, it's just a defense mechanism. My brain just works slightly differently and wanting to understand more about PTSD and the default mode network and how these things actually happened led me to understand trauma in dogs so much more. Now, I'm not saying that dogs can dissociate, but there's a dissociative part of PTSD. Go on. What if Drift is dissociating into work persona? He could do. Mm. That's the thing. It's like We I don't saw, know. We don't know. Because I was looking at, at one of the recent studies on PTSD, because PTSD is now known to have a dissociative subtype, where in your brain... Um, like your periaqueductal gray region that kind of controls with the default mode network. These are things that your listeners can Google. Yeah, um, and it sounds it sounds really impressive. And it, me. These are, these, are good, <laughs> these are good words. Yeah. yeah. Um, the periaqueductal gray is mentioned in Panscape's neuro... Um, oh, I don't um, know. Neuroscience. Effective neuroscience, that's it. And when you're triggered or when you're, when you're in that fight and flight mode... If you have a PTSD type stuff, you will either have an active response, so you'll have your fight and flight response that will activate and you get your HPA axis and you'll be full activation, you'll do something about it, so you'll fight or you'll fiddle or you'll run away. Or if you have the dissociative subtype, you'll have the passive response where you'll shut down. So what that happens is this happens in mammals that have had repetitive trauma, particularly early on where when they get scared, they just shut down. And I've seen this so much in my clients of dogs that have been in the milk, in the dog meat trade, those that have been puppy farmed, Drax in particular. Mm. Active to begin with, because when they get stressed, they've learned over time that their needs aren't going to be met by reacting. So it's easy to just kind of mm. suppress and be within yourselves. And I see so many dogs where I'm like, this dog shut down. It's in fight and flight modes, but it's stuck in that freeze. Like they're mm. in that shut down. And one of my clients is one of the dog meat trade dogs. She got rescued from the dog meat trade and she was very shut down. And we're about six months in and her owner's like, she's reacting. And I'm like, well, she's like, I think we've gone backwards. I'm like, why do you think we've gone backwards? Yeah, you're like, yes. Like, <laughs> yeah, she's like, she's now reacting. I'm like, that's a good thing. Mm. I'm like, she's now got an active response for it before it was passive like granted her barking at everyone now isn't isn't a good thing but she's now got the confidence to start letting you know that she's not happy in this situation so i know it seems like a backward step 
because some of the people that own some of the other dogs, they're taking them out and walks. These dogs are just like passively just going through the motions. Mm. Like if you look at their body language, you can just, it's almost like they're not there. They're just. They're not engaging in the environment. They've got blinkers on. Yeah. They're just, mm. they're shut down. They're just doing whatever they're doing to make themselves feel safe. It's almost like they are walking around in dissociation. Mm. Um, whereas her dog has now become this reactive idiot that's now going, I can hear something, ruff, 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 and someone's walked in, ruff, ruff, ruff. But she's getting so much more confident about it. And I'm like, no, your reactivity, this is a really good thing. Like, I know it seems like a bad thing, but we can get past this just like we have everything else. But if I didn't understand about the dissociative subtype of PTSD and know the neurochemistry that's happening around there, it would have confused me a lot more and taken me a lot more time to realize that actually this is a good thing. This is the brain starting to move out of that passive mode to learn to have more of an active response. So we're now activating, we're, for, we're forming new pathways here. This is brilliant. Mm-hmm. It seems backwards for a dog trainer to go, yay, your dog's barking and lunging mm-hmm. at people rather than kind of <laughs> shying away. But it's it's knowing that and understanding that. And I would love more dog trainers and just people in general to start understanding more about how your brain is changed by the things that you go through and how like the traumatic experiences are only traumatic to the person that's going through them. Mm. You know, what could be a horrendous experience for one person could be a Tuesday for someone else, you Mm. know, and it's not up to us to judge because you can't control how you react to those situations, just like our dogs can't control. And we've all seen, you know, it's usually cockapoos. I apologize, cockapoo owners that have had a big dog chase them and they scream. Mm. They're like, ah, and they haven't even been touched. But for that dog, it's a terrifying experience that made mm. them make this horrendous noise. And then you've had other dogs, generally your staffies, that have been pinned down by a Labradorian play that have gone, oh, this is the best thing ever. Whereas that would have terrified a different breed. So we, I think we tend to be a bit too judgmental and not quite understanding enough when it comes to these sorts of experiences and how that can affect the brain. And I would love more trainers in general to understand a bit more about neuroscience so when they're doing this training it's like am i dealing with a dog that's got a healthy brain yes fantastic training all the way off you go go and enjoy it am i dealing with a dog that's had some trauma in its past okay i'm probably dealing with a brain that isn't healthy let's take it back a step and build up that safety and like you said earlier trauma needn't be acute trauma as in they were in a car crash and now they're scared of getting in the car. It's never textbook like that. It can be drip drip. It could be developmental before they even came into their current home. Yeah. Um, I I really like the way you you put that and having confidence in knowing the science is there and what's going on physiologically to say your dog is barking. That's brilliant. Now we're on the next stage and now, now they can learn some new, more appropriate responses (laughs) whereas before we were in shutdown and I think a really interesting way of of looking at that is you know the tv programs that were on 10 years ago or so were doing that process in exactly the reverse so they were basically Mm -hmm. and then the magic cure at the end was the dog trotting quietly past someone whereas previously they were barking and you know wow magic hasn't yeah. it worked no it hasn't worked if you actually looked at the neurochemistry and the emotions yeah yeah so where where would you if you as, a, as someone wanting to go and have a look at some some neuroscience and find some stuff yeah. out where would be a good place to, to start oh it depends on their access to human stuff to be mm. honest um there's some fantastic books on 
on Amazon on neuroscience. There's a couple of organizations. So there's an international trauma. Oh my gosh, what's the? There's so many acronyms. Yes, <laughs> um, put on the spot. Well, if you if you do, okay. if you remember them, chuck us because I can stick them in the show notes and things like that. If you do, yeah. if, if things come to mind, because I I'm, I find it endlessly fascinating. Yeah, and a actually lot of it hearing you. Sorry, yeah, hearing you talk about that, the telling your client, no, great, they're reacting now. I mean, that's yeah. that's a lovely, that's a light bulb moment that I think if someone heard this back, they'd be like, oh, okay, that makes perfect sense. But you could see how someone might think they're taking a step backwards as well, can't you? And oh gosh, yeah, like even maybe like five or six years ago, if that happened to one of my clients. I'd be thinking that I'd done something wrong because mm. I be, I see it as a step backwards, but now I understand what's going on. I'm like, we've got an active response now. That means we can change the activity. Like we, we can change the, the response to yeah. a different behavior that is still active. So we can change it to like whatever. And that's where the more operant stuff starts to come. It's like, okay, now we can teach you other behaviors. So when you're in this state, one of them is going to show up at some point. Cause that's kind of what I'm a lazy trainer. So I have a lot of unfinished behaviors. So when my dogs are in situations where they're a bit unsure, they'll just throw random stuff at me. Hmm. And some dogs in that kind of panic thing, when they start to build up, they'll do similar things. If they don't know what to do, so they'll just throw it. And usually the previous behavior will show up there at some point. So as soon as they offer you that, great, let's do that and Hmm. and build. And it was just, it was a wonderful thing to hear from this client after this dog that was just so shut down for ages. And now she's barking. I'm like, yes. I like that. We we all we all pride ourselves in this industry. I think for being science led, but mm-hmm. I think I I know personally myself. You know, I need to put my money where my mouth is sometimes when it, when it comes to that. And um, yeah, Dave, just doing this podcast in fairness has opened my mind up to just loads and loads of things and possibilities yeah. and people and ideas and and science and it, you know and it's always making me. It's always giving me mind-blow yeah. moments and it's, it's, it's ever-evolving it's not static yeah so and that's, that's the way it should all... be isn't it yeah, yeah yeah and also the kind of like you see you alluded to this earlier on danny as well the cutting edge is up here what we're what we've got is down here somewhere do you know so how long does it take for that cutting edge stuff to filter down to a dog trainer you know yeah god knows so you know exactly you can only work with what you've and got I think to a certain degree one of the biggest problems with the scientific industry in academia in general is that they are so discipline based Hmm. is that if you're studying something that can cross disciplines which dog training often does it's so difficult to be able to find people that are able to transfer and cross those disciplines and bring it together um where it actually makes sense because you won't find a lot of people that are doing like human psychology things and the psychiatrists that understand trauma and trauma-informed care they're not teaching dog trainers because it doesn't even occur to them most of the time that their work is relevant. And a lot of dog trainers wouldn't think of going on a counseling course to help them with the dogs. (laughs) Like it'll help you for your human clients, but it will also help you understand your dog's behavior because they're still mammals. And it's, it's that kind of side of things where a lot of the times they don't cross disciplines and knowing where to look for the right research that's written in a way that you can understand and can actually, that you can access. That's mm. the hardest part for it, especially when it comes to neuroscience is a lot of the research just isn't easy stuff to access. I'm quite grateful that I've got ResearchGate, but that's that's as far as 
as I can go and I will message the author and go can I please have, have that it, it's kind of getting it in a if you're not from a scientific background it is quite daunting reading a journal isn't it it's oh, like I, do, I don't really understand this isn't written for me you kind of need it um translated almost yeah. and and that's the beauty of having these kind of communities and network is it's just talking about it in yeah. in normal terms you know not even layman's terms just talking about it in a dog day-to-day term and one of my closest friends is um a, a human play therapist and she oh, got yeah. a dog and we talk about you know the crossover of the trauma research and all sorts and she just gets it she's a fantastic client because she just gets it yeah um because that's that's what she's practicing albeit on a different species um, we went we went to um i don't i don't know if you came actually now but i went to a lecture at winchester university on play therapy um that was really interesting. oh no i, I didn't come human. in the end that yeah. was in humans yeah. but uh, the, i could instantly see the benefits you know with dogs or i mean obviously i got my little unruly jack russell here who's trying to tell me i know she's being needy isn't she bless her she is. it's because corinne's away she's she's the kiss assassin <laughs> <laughs> right steve i don't know when we're going to get a chance to put this out so i might be mentioning something that's in the past here but i'm going to do it anyway I well I, I think i i think I might do this one before, actually. I might okay. put this one out quick because I, yeah, because it'll it can get out. Well, quick. there's the reason I'm I'm saying it is because I wondered if um, Danielle could just give a quick uh, plug for the APBC webinar that's tomorrow, tomorrow. night um, okay. with Dr. Frank McMillan. Dr. Frank McMillan saying, and if anyone wants translated science in a empathetic and compassionate way then dr frank is the yeah person to do it so, so that's, that's um, sorry it did or had a little mini freeze then so that's dr frank mcmillan was it yes and where can, can you just find tell us a bit about it danny because i know you were involved in the yeah organization so i first saw dr frank mcmillan at the action conference and he is such a fascinating man when it comes to the trauma and development and he's going to do a webinar for us on social pain which is all about the intense pain that you feel when your social when your social boundaries are broken so when your offspring leave you or when the attachment fails and he's got some wonderful case studies about that and how a lot of the time the social pain and that emotional pain that we can go through affects us more than physical pain so it is a, a very genuine pain and he's also going to come back next year to do ptsd as well oh my god <laughs> i um, honestly cannot re- i was there at the action conference and we were just we were falling a little bit over Dr. Uh, yeah, <laughs> a lot. it was just when you meet other people that that understand ptsd and can return translate it into animal form and give you studies and go through like case studies and stuff and you're like someone else that gets it because it makes you feel less alone like Mm. when you're the only person kind of drumming this kind of stuff through to people and using it in day to day and there's not a lot of people that i find that have the passion that me and nat do for this sort of thing there's a handful of us in the community that i know of if there's anyone else out there by all means get in touch with me yeah please do (laughs) because i really want to have more trauma informed i want to have trauma informed dog trainers ones that that understand that these animals they're different they work differently but they're not broken 
Like there's nothing wrong with them. They're just a little bit different and they just need a different approach. Sometimes mm -hmm. they need medication. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they have health problems. It's just a, you can't just show up with a clicker and some treats and teach them a watch me and everything's going to be okay. They, they need a lot of extra work and you get very little out of them for about a year on average. And it would be nice to see more people that understand that that can help their owners understand this so their expectations are managed so they're able to see similar to when natalie um put a picture up of jack's poo when he was able to poo and you had like a nice you know it's like a things that to have people around that could understand these small little wins that you have with these dogs that mean so much that most people are like but that's just normal and you're like yeah for you but for this dog yeah. this is a huge achievement first poo in the big garden was a big deal yeah absolutely <laughs> Oh, well, as a slight spoiler, you'll be pleased to know I've got you that framed for Christmas. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> right, I, I'm going to have to shimmy off because yeah, um, I think got a, um, I've got a Jack Russell that I think must need the toilet. And um, yeah, and I've got a Newfoundland downstairs dropping Kong bombs on me on the kitchen floor that I've got to go. Oh, can that you way. hear her banging around down oh there? God, throwing them like around. Well, sounds like World War III's kicking. Yeah, well, we, I, I haven't heard houses. anything, but well, then I've good. been in, in geek mode. So yeah. This has been absolutely <laughs> awesome. I think we should do this again um yeah like I, I, feel like we've, I feel like we've just scratched the surface a little bit um well the 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 meerkat thing what's the address uh website address and where how can people it's, get that? it's control the meerkat.com control the meerkat.com um the website was live and then it wasn't because we've had it updated and then everything broke okay so um the facebook page is active um i'll just have a look at danielle beck clinical animal behavior and you'll be able to and follow everything on from from there yeah that sounds super super interesting we'll stick some links in the in the post as well if that's Thank all right you. it's not just clients only is it are you oh you, gosh no it's everybody anyone, yeah anyone is invited i i as, if you're interested if you are in them want to learn more or if you just want to listen to me waffle to a camera one month like you're welcome <laughs> it's i'd listen to your waffle <laughs> I've waffled a lot, so I apologise if no, I've waffled. No, you haven't. It's been brilliant. Please it's been brilliant. Ever. Yeah, no, it's been really, really good. It's, it's been really interesting. Thank you so oh, much thank for coming you, on. Steve. Yeah, thank, thank you, so much thank for inviting you. me. No problem. Well, we will have to do it again soon. Happy to. And um, I'll see you for Dr. Frank tomorrow, I guess. You will do. Yeah. I'll see you then. <laughs> All right. Take care. Right. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right. Take care. <laughs> Hi. Well, there you go. Uh, what did I say? Absolutely incredible. Um, I am, uh, yeah, I was just in awe listening to Danielle um, talking there. Um, I hope you really enjoyed that. Obviously, it's an off-the-shelf, um, not as long as our usual podcast, but absolutely thrilling, I thought. Um, okay, so um, we'll be back with a brand new book review episode um, coming up this week, guaranteed, ladies and gentlemen. But until then, I bid you farewell. Oh, bye-bye. Atoms collide, our cells divide, just like they've always done. A spark of life, we multiply this rhyme.
that stretches back through all time. Time guided by a primal desire to simply survive. Survive, you can't keep it down, you know, it grows. For feet, for seed, our genes compete. This war is never won Numbers increase For reason and peace Are mass as one We're strong And where opposition exists it's our duty to persist Resist and fight and defend till the end Another's right to all this This bliss A a kiss, you can't keep me down, you know, and I can't keep you down, I know, and it